Hey, what's going on? I'm Mike Gaston, and you are listening, or maybe even watching, The Currency. This is episode number 61. We're talking about Elon's Neuralink. Welcome to the show. This is uh, Sunday, September 20th, as we're recording this live on YouTube. You may be listening to this on uh, Apple or Amazon or Spotify or Google after the fact, but please know that if you want to get in on the real fun, you got to jump in on the live stream. This happened on YouTube Live. Just search for Mike Gaston on YouTube and you'll be able to find us. But yeah, I'm glad to be here today. We're going to talk a little bit about Neuralink. I like to hit a little bit of news at the beginning of the show. And I was just looking at the news uh, before we jump into our main topic. I was looking at the news for the week and I'm like, oh my gosh, I already want to touch half the stuff with the 10 foot pole. So as you know, uh, if you're an American, Ruth Bader Ginsburg has passed away. I think she passed away yesterday, the day before. Uh, there is, and I'm not going to comment on, you know, the, the meaning of her death. I'm not going to comment. It's just, it's just mayhem. It's political mayhem right now in America. And a lot of people, I, I know there's a group of people that feel like, oh, I just wish that politics wasn't so ugly. I wish that politics could be, you know, like the old days when people were, were you know, more courteous and, and, and decorous and so on. And, and there's a few there's a few things you got to consider about politics in any country. I mean, you look at Thailand is there's this thing going on. They want to they want to get rid of the monarchy in Thailand. I mean, this is just these are fundamental, fundamental changes that are happening in the world around us. And uh, and I think Neuralink is part of that fundamental change. I, I, not that there's one simple fundamental, there's just many fundamental changes. But I think Neuralink represents one of those changes. We're going to get into that. But Ruth Bader Ginsburg's passing is a big deal. It's a big deal. If anybody, if you know about American politics, the Supreme Court weighs really heavily. And you've got the three branches of American government. And this is for, for non-Americans, but quite frankly, for Americans too, because sometimes I wonder how much we know our own political system. You know, you have your executive branch, that's it's usually your president, vice president, and his administration, his or her. We've yet to have a her. Uh, if Biden wins, I think we're going to have a her because I don't think he's going to make it through a full term. Uh, I just mean his incompetency. I'm not foretelling his passing as well. That's not what that's all about, that comment. But you have your executive branch. You have your legislative branch, which is comprised of the Senate, the House of Representatives, your Congress, your Senate. And then you have your Supreme Court, your judicial branch. And these three branches work in unison, and they also work to check and balance one another, uh, and, and they provide different, different functions. Well, typically your Supreme Court is deciding um, legal matters. Things happen down on a grassroots level. They float up eventually if they're challenged and contested, and eventually the Supreme Court, if it gets that high, will adjudicate. They'll decide on the matter. And typically they're, tr they're supposed to. Uh, and there's different theories here, but it, they're supposed to be deciding these things based on their constitutionality. Is this situation, is it constitutional? Is, does, it, does it uphold the rights of the American citizen? Does it protect the, the American um, way of government and, and the economy, et cetera? The things that are kind of laid out. Um, not that the Constitution gets into what kind of economy we're going to have, but it, 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 it implies it by th things like personal property and the right to assemble and and mercantile activities and so on, some of the and uh, some of the um, amendments to the Constitution, free speech and and so on. So, pardon, you'll have to pardon me. I have a little bit of a allergy thing going on today. Maybe a sniffle here or there. So, Ruth Bader Ginsburg is on the Supreme Court. She passed away. Well, the thing about the court that's so important and uh, to a lot of people right now is that the court not only decides on the constitutionality of an issue that is before them. But often they're setting policy. Uh, the Supreme Court is in its... Uh, we have a visitor here that has just joined the podcast. It is Izzy the dog. Let's see if we can get Izzy up in the... Uh, can we get her up so people can see her? Come here, you. This is Izzy. We'll move the microphone. Can you say hello? <laughs> okay. All right. You got to beat it now. Hopefully, hopefully one of Izzy's handlers will come and get her while I'm uh, doing this. She's learned, so I've got these French doors in the office. She's learned that if she throws her weight against the doors, she can just knock them open. And usually I'll put a gate in front of the door. I forgot to do that. So I hear somebody right now putting a gate in front of the door. But that is Izzy. Izzy. That's Isabella, by the way. <laughs> She's a golden retriever about, I think, about six months old. Anyway, the Supreme Court decides on stuff. It becomes policy. It becomes law. It, they're not just deciding on the constitutionality. It's become a bit activist. 
And so what each side, each political side tries to do is to stack the Supreme Court with justices that are aligned politically with that cause, either to the left or to the right. And this is why there's such a battle for the Supreme Court justice seats. You know, the sitting president, when a Supreme Court seat is vacated, the sitting president gets to pick, nominate, put forward their candidate. And I can think of one time during my lifetime, but there's probably been more, where a Supreme Court uh, justice nominee has has not made it through the nomination process. But it's rare. Typically, they make it through. If you look at the last one, uh, Justice Kavanaugh, they savaged him. I mean, they beat this guy to crap. And the funny thing is, they they painted him to be this like really right wing monster. Oh, he's a right wing monster. And the guy's kind of center right. In fact, there's been some cases that have come through where he's decided or sided with. Uh, the left, you know, the center, center left. So uh, the Kavanaugh, you know, they, there's always this battle and they try to destroy the person going in and try to stop them and so on. The left is pretty upset because Ginsburg was quite a leftist. She was not a centrist. I mean, she was a progressive leftist. And obviously with Trump sitting uh, pres- as sitting president, he's going to be able to put somebody in that, that he thinks uh, is going to represent the views that he wants to see going forward in the country. And, you know, you're not elected. This is a non-elected official uh, this is uh, the Supreme Court justice. They have the position for life. Obviously, they're allowed to retire if they want to for whatever reason, but they have the position for life. I would imagine there's some process that you can, you know, get rid of a Supreme Court justice if, uh, you know, if they're not functioning. There's got to be something in there where they say, look, this person's drooling in a bucket. That you know, they're they're making decisions that are just bizarre. You know, they run around the halls of of, uh, <laughs> of the of the courthouse and their underwear. I don't know. There's got to be something where you can bounce them. I'm guessing there's some type of impeachment process. I, I don't know what that looks like. But the point being, they're in for life. These are non-elected people. And so there's a bit of noise right now. So, you know, Ginsburg passing away, especially the time we're in. I mean, it just, so I opened this up, this topic up saying, just politically, what a mess right now. What a battle for the soul of the country. And I think I think it's not just a matter, you know, people that say, I wish we could go back to simpler times when people were more polite. I don't think the issue is our lack of civility. I think that is a real issue. I think we have become less civil in society. And that's probably something happening all over the world. I don't imagine that's just an American thing. But I do think that you are seeing politics become more and more bifurcated, more and more partisan, more and more uh, contentious, more and more ugly, uh, because we really are battling for the soul of a society. Where are we going? And I'm not convinced that that elections are going to be enough to capture the soul of the country. And I'm not convinced that, you know, getting the right Supreme Court justice or getting the right president, getting the right congressperson is enough to capture the soul, but I think it's enough to enact the kinds of legislation and guide the country in ways that you think are better than your competitors. I still think you've got to capture the hearts and imagination of the people. I don't think it's either or, but I don't think it's enough. And uh, so for that reason, you've got to battle it out. You have to fight for every every millimeter of uh, advancement that you can get for your cause. On the other hand, it's not just the legal and political battle. I think we've got to start battling for people's minds and hearts. And that means we need to t- start telling stories. We need to start having a narrative that people can resonate with and um, and get people on board with things that are are at uh, the level of life that, that all of us are trying to live right now. Many of us are just trying to pay our bills or trying, trying to care for our families. We want to be healthy. We want to be able to pursue the things that are in, of interest to us. We want to be able to apply our time and our talents and our skills to the things that, that we're wired to do. We want to expand ourselves and grow. And that's very interesting. So yeah, so Ruth Bader Ginsburg, big deal right now. And, and I think the same it's the same dynamic that's happening in Belarus. It's the same dynamic that's happening in Thailand. You're seeing these protests. You're seeing people take to the streets uh, saying that, you know, that the, and, and the same you're seeing with BLM in the U.S. and Antifa. I'm not saying that I'm supporting any of these movements or that I'm against any of them. I think you have to take each one case by case. But the point is people are unhappy with the state of things, which is kind of interesting in some ways. It's interesting to see how unhappy people are with the state of things. I mean, here I am streaming to you from Gaston Manor, a farmhouse in upstate New York, uh, live across the world. And I'm doing this in a way that is relatively affordable. I had to dump a little bit of money into some kit, not much, relatively speaking. And you're able to watch me on a smartphone or a laptop, an iPad, a tablet of some sort. I mean, it's quite amazing, quite frankly. 
Let's take a look here. George has a comment. He says, if I were Trump, I would not name a judge before the election. This would keep the pressure on the conservatives to vote for him. Yeah, that is a thing. And, and I think there's some con conversations right now, too. Uh, some, some pundits have said even before Ginsburg passed away that one of the worst things that could happen for Trump is that a justice passes away right before the election, because this will also motivate his opponents to say, we need to now we really need to get this guy out of office. I think the, the left has had a hard time uh, mobilizing their base or, or energizing or capturing the imagination of their base uh, in any way that's meaningful with the Biden-Harris ticket. I mean, if you look at, I mean, I don't care if you're left or right. I know it's going to be hard for people to hear this. Biden really is, uh, it's, it's just sad. I mean, this is a really, this is an old guy who's not on top of his game it's, it's obvious to anybody that wants to see it. I'm not saying that, you know, and there's a lot about Joe that's, that's problematic, to use a phrase from the left. I mean, I can't believe he's made it through Me Too unscathed, the way he treats uh, females that are close to him, just the, the inappropriate behavior, his stories about um, people of color when he was younger. I mean, Joe is just not a really energizing, exciting candidate and on any level. I mean, he's just... He lacks a level of competency. You know, when he ran for president uh, many, many years ago, in the, or was it the early 90s, he had to bow out because he was caught plagiarizing swaths of information about, uh, you know, his time in Vietnam, et cetera. I mean, Joe's not known for being a high quality. He's not a horrible human being. Why? Well, you know, I shouldn't say that. I mean, there are also the questions around uh, um, Ukraine, um, Burisma and all that jazz and his son, Hunter. But even if you want to ignore all that, I mean, like if you put all that aside, it's easy as a conservative to go, here are all the problems with Joe Biden. But it, let's say you're a centrist or let's say you're an intellectually honest Democrat leftist. You still look at Biden and you're like, it's hard to get excited about this guy. You know, he's just not the kind of leader that you get really excited about. And you, then you add Harris, who, who struggled to get 1% of the uh, vote for the nomination. This is not an energizing ticket. So I think most of their support is really coming from this hostility to Trump. And in branding, you know, and that's what I'm all about. I shouldn't say it's what I'm all about. It's what I do all day. In branding, you really don't want to brand and stand for, you know, what you're against. No one's going to buy you because you're against something. No one's going to buy you because, well, those guys stink, so you should buy my product because they stink. That's like, that's the worst reason, because what happens when they fix their problems? What happens when their product gets better? You've kind of lost your talking point. You want people to buy your service, your product, you, uh, for what you stand for. Now, what you stand for can be positioned against something, you know, but, but I want people to choose me for me. I don't want them to choose me uh, be, because I... Um, am standing against something. I want them to choose me because I stand for something. Just going to plug something in there. And, and I think that's one of the problems with the uh, Biden-Harris ticket is the, and bear with me, you're just looking at my notes for a second there. It's uh, the screen switch. There we go. <laughs> Operator error. Uh, but, but the Biden-Harris ticket, I think really its main support is anti-Trumpism, which is not very strong. Now you, now you add Ruth Bader Ginsburg's death into the mix, meaning the vacated seat on the Supreme Court. Well, now you've got something to vote for. This is this could really be mobilizing. And so, George, you know, you're saying if you're Trump, you wouldn't do that. It, it, you know, that's fine. It might demotivate, but honestly, if you didn't fill it, you might find the left even more motivated to get their person in there so that they can fill it. And the left has been really savvy. I got to give them credit. They really understand the institutions and the long march. You know, the right has done a poor job about with this, but the left has understood that they, they need to take over educational halls if they want to start forming minds. And they've been doing this for generations now. You know, secondary, post-secondary, uh, you know, grad school, et cetera. You know, a lot of these uh, you know, high school, grade school teachers, college professors, university professors, and so on, these, are, these positions are all populated mainly, not solely, but mainly by people of a progressive worldview. Well, that's affecting the people that are being educated, which is pretty much everybody in the country these days. Uh, you look at entertainment, you know, you look at these different uh, 
institutions. The left has done a good job of inserting themselves in setting the agenda in those institutions. And I think they see the value of the Supreme Court. And, you know, often as a conservative, the very name conservative, you're trying to conserve or protect something. You're not playing aggressive uh, to win. You're playing to protect and defend. And you can't win a game by playing defense. It just doesn't work that way. And I think the progressives have done better. So, George, to your point, if he doesn't fill it, I think there's, there, he stands a bigger risk of mobilizing the left to get rid of them so that they can fill it. This is a reason now to be really excited about uh, Biden-Harris for them. I would say, that's my opinion on this. Let's see what Dubois says. Quote, the judgment of God will not be turned by a more conservative president, but by the repentance of its people. Paul David Washer. Yeah, and I think you're getting at what I was saying. I Here's the problem I have with that. I don't have a problem with that statement, Doughboy. Here's the problem I have with that, and that is that I find a lot of Christians that I've known, they're so frustrated with politics, they're so frustrated with the legal side of things, they give, oh, it's ugly, oh, it's nasty, oh, all that stuff doesn't matter, it's all about God. And I'm like, that's fine. So then they, they get focused on, you know, people having good hearts and being converted, and that's all fine, but like if you don't spend time also, it's, it, to me it's not an either or, it's a both and. If you don't spend time trying to put on the books, uh, you know, good, good laws, moral laws, laws that allow human beings to flourish, then what you're doing is you're taking away the space that people have to live a good life and to, and to find the truth. Uh, you know, so you, you strip, you allow darkness to encroach. I mean, I think of the Lord of the Rings, you know, the whole idea is that there's a darkness coming to the land. You know, you've got to, you've got to be brave. You've got to stand up and do the hard thing to make sure that not only for yourself, uh, and it's not about staying home in, in the Shire and just living your nice little life. You've got to sometimes face the darkness and push out and make room for the light to shine so that other people can benefit from that. Uh, that's part of the whole hero's journey. I mean, if you look at, if you look at um, uh, um, I want to say Conrad, it's not Conrad. I'm going to go blank now. It's Joseph. <laughs> It'll come to me in a minute. But uh, the hero with a thousand faces you know, in his book, in his work, you have the hero who has this inciting incident, this person minding their own business. There's an inciting incident, this thing that calls them to adventure. There's this thing that says, come out of your nice, cushy um, Campbell, Joseph Campbell, sorry. Uh, come out of your nice, cushy world and face this giant, whatever it is. And if you face the giant, in the end, uh, you make the world a better place. By, by doing this, you, you win something for everyone. You're transformed in the process as the hero, but the hero saves the day for everyone, makes the world a better place for everyone. And I think that's what we're lacking right now. I think we need to see more uh, of a heroic nature on the right. We're getting better at fighting back, you know, and Trump is, you know, he's great. He's a pit bull, right? So you can put him in the ring and he's not a conservative. I've said this before, but he knows how to throw punches and, and so on. And so people like that. But I think being mean isn't enough. I think we have to be heroic. And I don't think that we understand what that means. Um, so anyway. All right. Uh, Tom said, uh, this is Doughboy Biscuit. Tom, he must have gotten in touch with his buddy. Tom said, just say when and he'll do the interview. He's working on his garden right now. That's good. Tom's got good priorities. We're all working in his garden. That's uh, that's a good one. All right. So I'll tell you what, let's get into Neuralink. I've been jibber jabbering a little bit about today's news. Uh, I probably spent a little bit more time on that than I intended to, but let's talk about Neuralink. You know, George said a moment ago, what is, or uh, sorry, I think maybe Tom said, what is Neuralink? George knows what Neuralink is. But for those that, for the uninitiated, Neuralink is a company uh, that Elon Musk, I believe, started. This is a Musk project. And essentially what they're doing is they are busy working on technology that can be implanted into a human being's skull that wires into your brain so that they can then augment someone's brain and by doing so allow that person to augment their capabilities. Now, the initial idea behind this is there may be people that have lost their ability to walk. There are people that maybe lost the ability to move their hands. Uh, they have speech problems. Like there have been injuries. People born maybe with, with um, fully functioning brains, but their body's not working properly. Or where they've been fully functioning, but then they had some type of uh, terrible accident and this has left them... 
Uh, this has left them crippled. And so Neuralink, the idea behind this, and I want to unpack this because we want to talk about a couple things today. We want to talk about the technology behind this and where it's going. But there's like a transcendent moral question behind this that I want to, that I want to talk about. And it's not just Neuralink. But, but we're so enamored with technology and what it can do for us. And technology has transformed our lives in an amazing way. And, and I think it, this Neuralink is a good example of we should be asking some deeper questions about what we're doing. So I want to unpack this a little bit. This is not going to be me attacking Neuralink. Uh, I, I just think it's a fascinating project. But I'm concerned that we're not asking some important questions. We'll get to that in a minute. But but unpacking that in just a minute, let me say hi to a couple of people here. Looks like Tom joined the the uh, st stream. What's going on, Tom? Now I understand you were gardening, so I don't want to keep you from your gardening. But thank you for saying hi, Tom. We need to talk, and I want to get you on the stream. We'll do an interview. Uh, I will follow up uh, with you sometime this week. But let's let's get together on that. But thanks for joining us. And then we've got uh, Kareem. This is someone new. Uh, Kareem Ben. Uh, Babuti, Karim, uh, Karim Babuti. You cannot even imagine how much we Middle Easterners pay attention to your election, maybe even more than you, Mike. You know, Karim, I, I probably believe you, you know, we're talking about a country of 350 million people. And if you're talking about America, and I'm not trying to be uh, disrespectful to my fellow countrymen, but Americans... We're consumers. We're busy enjoying ourselves. We're busy consuming. We're busy, like every human being is focused on their own life. But our country was founded on an idea of individualism. Now, I'm not saying that's the only concept, but, but, but what's been elevated through the generations is the primacy and the importance of the individual. Now, there are a lot of questions as to if that's even good. And I could do a whole podcast on that. But to your point, and the reason I bring this up is we're so focused on ourselves that we don't always pay attention to the election on the levels that we probably should. People have strong feelings about it, especially after Trump. I mean, I think even before Trump, I think, um, you know, once we had George Bush, we had the, the Iraq war. I mean, people started getting more and more probably involved through, I mean, each successive gen generation, each successive election, I think, has brought out kind of a deeper interest in elections, but it's more of an emotional passion. So I think Trump is really, we've seen that kind of explode under Trump. And people don't realize the impact that America, Americans don't realize the impact that, that our country has on the world around us. So I can understand, Karim, if you're saying, yeah, we pay attention probably closer than you do. I'm not exactly sure where you are in the Middle East, but I can understand uh, why you would be interested to see what happens in America. And I know a lot of people like to turn their nose up in America. I know a lot of people are frustrated with America. I mean, it's just, you know, you could say so many different things about it. But the fact is, America is an imperial country. I mean, it has its tentacles out across the world. It impacts the world. And even if we didn't do that anymore, even if we pulled back and said, you know, we're not going to be involved like we used to. We're not going to get involved in people's affairs, other countries. We're just going to stick to ourselves. We're still a... We're such a behemoth that we create so much gravitational pull that even if we were minding our own business, we would still have a huge impact on the world uh, economically, uh, culturally, and so on. So uh, I totally can appreciate that. Krim, thanks for joining us. So getting to Neuralink. So this Neuralink concept, what they're building, what they're creating is the ability to take uh, this unit, which is about the size of a coin. If you think of uh, the size of like an American quarter, uh, you know, just not very big, something pretty small. And they're implant, they can implant it into the skull. Now, there's a couple of things that they're building. First of all, they want to make sure that this implant is done robotically because this is such a sensitive, dangerous area of any mistake. You know, you're, you're essentially cutting open a piece of skull. You're putting this, this kind of coin-sized unit, you know, into the skull so that it lays flat and flush. And then it has all these kind of wires that come off of it. And these wires are surgically implanted into various parts of the brain so that it can receive electrical impulses and send electrical impulses. But the idea is um, that it is able to read what the brain is doing and then transmit that information out. Now, what they want to do with this and what they're talking about right now is the ability to give a paraplegic, um, the ability to give a paraplegic, uh, the, 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 the agency to walk or to allow someone to control, say, a computer through thinking. So let's say somebody uh, can't use their arms, uh, but they can, they can use this Neuralink device to control a computer. This is where they're trying to go with it. 
Now, I'm not familiar with any human tests yet. I don't think that they've done it. In fact, Elon, back in August, I think it was August 28th, at the end of August, did an hour-long presentation. Uh, You can find it on the Neuralink uh, YouTube channel or their website. At the beginning of the presentation, he said, look, I'm not doing this for, for marketing purposes. I'm not doing this to raise funds. We have all the money we need. I'm not doing this to promote. I'm doing this because we're looking for talent. I'm doing this as a recruiting effort. And they had the press there, a bunch of people. They did an hour long. He did a presentation. Uh, they had Q&A from Twitter and Q&A from the local press. It was quite a big deal. But the whole thing is right now they've got about 100 employees. And he said, I can see this being a 10,000 person company. Now, this gives you the idea of where he thinks this is going. You don't have a 10,000 person company if you're helping paraplegics solely. I don't think there are enough crippled. I mean, there are a lot of crippled people in the world, but I don't think this is Elon saying if we have the ability to help the infirmed and the crippled and the handicapped, we're going to make this into a 10,000 person company. No, I think he has a different vision for Neuralink. We're going to talk about this, Uh, but they're starting with this idea of helping paraplegics. And he did this event um, as a recruiting event. Now he was kind of joking. He was talking about how small he was talking about other technology that's out there already. And there are some other technologies. There's like a big box that they can put on someone's head that transmits and so on. It's really expensive. It's very limited. And he's like, you can't walk around with a box in your head. It's just, you wouldn't, you wouldn't be able to blend in, he said. And, and there were some other technologies like, um, you know, stimulation. They can stimulate the brain and so on. It, it has limited uses and outcomes. But the thing that he was talking about with Neuralink is you wouldn't know if somebody had it. I mean, if they had a Neuralink unit uh, put in, it would be, you know, under the scalp, hair would, if they had hair, unlike me, Uh, it would cover it. He said, as a matter of fact, I could have one right now and you wouldn't even know it. And he kind of said, you know, you know how Elon is. I mean, he set up with this kind of awkward, dry, straight face and he didn't correct. He didn't say, but I don't. He just said, you just wouldn't know. I might have one. You don't know. He just left it out there. Now, of course, that's a little bit of showmanship. I would be surprised if Elon's walking around with the Neuralink device. I don't know that it's that advanced yet that he'd want one jacked into his head. I think Elon without the Neuralink device is already advanced enough, but, um, but I just thought that was an interesting thing to say. Now, during the presentation, they did demonstrate some pigs that they had implanted the device in. So they had three different pigs they were showing. One was a pig that had had the device before, but then the device was taken out. And the reason they had that pig is they wanted to show that this was a you know, that you can implant the device and you can take it out without any damage. The pig was happy, running around, normal, etc. They had another pig that had never had the device so that you could compare. And finally, they had a pig uh, that was reluctant to come out. It, it took them a little while because it was off in the corner. I don't know if it was eating or something. But they eventually, you know, got it to come out into the visual, this pen that they had. And this pig had the Neuralink device implanted. And what they had done is on, the, on a big screen, you could visually see the electrical activity in the pig's mind, and you could hear uh, the, the the device picking up signals. So they, it would kind of beep, at almost like it almost sounded like a Geiger counter. It wasn't quite, but if you think of that ticking of a Geiger counter as it gets close to radioactive material, but it was more of a beeping sound. And essentially, what it was happening is every time the pig's snout touched something, these beeps would get louder and louder. And then when it wasn't touching, thing would quiet down. It was just fascinating to see that essentially the Neuralink device was picking up the stimuli in the pig's brain that it was receiving from the sensation of touch as its snout touched things, as it was eating and poking and prodding and snuffling about, it would, uh, the device would communicate or transmit this data out. So right now it's a proof of concept. And uh, I think it's, it's fascinating. When I say proof of concept, I want to be careful there. I'm not saying this is just a concept. Right now, they're testing the technology, and I don't think they've got it exactly where they want it, but they've made huge strides. And the idea is that you're going to be able to control a computer by thinking. Um, They've said, look, we could actually put a second Neuralink device in, so let's say somebody's lost the ability to walk. So you've got one device in your mind, which is now your brain, which is saying, you know, I want to move my legs. They could then put another device if the spinal cord is damaged at the base of the spine. So they kind of skip all that damaged spinal cord, which would then transmit data to the nerves in our legs that would allow you then to walk. So you kind of jump over that damaged spine that's not sending the signal. Let's take a look here. Uh, By the way, Karim says he's in Iran. Welcome. Yeah. I think, was it like uh, 11, 12 at night right there, right now in, in Iran? 
Uh, Zoltan says, the point of these technologies is that we don't know yet where they can be applied in the future. Elon just wants to push forward. Now, okay, so I think that's a good transition. So, so Zoltan, I agree to a degree, <laughs> but I think, I think Elon does have an idea. I think he's got an idea. So you're absolutely right. I don't think that, and I think this, let me back up. This isn't just about Elon. This just isn't about, uh, it, this isn't just about this technology. Let's talk a little bit about strategy and planning. People talk about strategic planning. They love planning. Oh, we're doing planning. We're doing our strategy session. You know, companies will, will spend, you know, a week off-site. They get all the head of departments, the big, big wigs out off-site. They'll do this big planning session. How did we do last year? What's the data? What do we want to do next year? What's our strategy going forward? And they come out of these sessions planning out their year. They've got their strategic plan, and they're going to start implementing the plan, and we're going to grow. We're going to do this. We're going to do that. But there's one big problem with all of planning. I'm not anti-planning, but planning needs to know its place. Planning is not strategy making. You can't make strategy in a planning session. And the reason you can't do that is because you can't predict the future. If you could forecast, if you knew what was going to happen in the future, then planning would be great. Well, you had two options. I guess if you could predict the future, planning would be great. Or if you could control the future, planning would be great. Now, now, countries, businesses, they, they, they make this mistake. I mean, the Soviet Union was classic for this. They, they were a planned economy, a planned society. We're going to plan it all out. The guys at the top of the food chain are the ones that are the smartest, the brightest, or the visionaries, and they're going to create the strategy. They're going to create the plan. And then all the peons underneath, it's, it's our job to implement and execute on the great leader's plan. There's a few problems with that. I mean, one is obviously, like, like I said, you can't predict or control the future. The second thing is usually the guys on the top are detached from what's happening on the ground. And so a Stalin could sit and say, you know, hey, or a, or a Mao Zedong could say, hey, you guys, you, this is what you need to do. You know, let's get rid of all the, let's, let's, let's get rid of all the um, sparrows, you know, Mao's... Uh, <laughs> 50-year leap forward, whatever was the 50-year famine, he, you know, he killed all the sparrows because he hated sparrows. For, I forget the reason. He had something about sparrows. He killed them all, which then, of course, uh, insects swarmed the country, destroyed all the crops, and everybody was starving to death. So, I mean, you get the guys at the top so detached from reality and not understanding how their decisions impact the day-to-day -day lives of people. You know, another example out of China, they, they were trying to create their own um, steel and, and metal. And so they had all their people in all the villages, they set up these little smelting furnaces and forges in all the little towns and villages. And everybody came out, there's photographs of them bringing all their pots and pans and spoons and spatulas and knives, bring them out because it's going to be the great leap forward. We're going to smelt down all your stuff. We're going to make our own steel. We're going to make our own stuff. And it was horrible quality stuff. I mean, it just, it was just terrible quality stuff. And so what you ended up doing is taking really valuable tools you have a, a spatula in your kitchen, a, a knife in your kitchen, uh, a pan to cook things in in your kitchen. That's life or death. That like totally transforms your life. If you if you need to boil your rice and you get rid of your pot that you boil your rice in, then what are you going to do? So all these people, you know, being faithful to the leader, probably be under threat of violence, bring all their stuff, or some of them just you know they buy in like it's a religion, bring their stuff. Well now. The materials that they made, their farm implements were garbage. They couldn't use the tools that they made out of the smelted metal because it was so inferior, so crude. And at the same time, they stripped up everybody of useful tools. So my point here being that planning doesn't work. And I do agree with you, Zoltan. I think that Elon's smart enough to say, hey, we really don't know where this technology can or will go. We don't know. But... Uh, we want to develop and put it out there because we know it's kind of like the, this is an amazing opportunity. If we can crack this code, we'll see where it takes us. It's like a rocket ship. We'll see where it takes us. So I totally agree with you there. I think Elon is smart enough to know that he can't plan what this is going to be. But I do think Elon is looking out past the paraplegics and the crippled and the injured of our society. I think this is where he's starting. I think, and here's why I think this. Elon Musk has been on record multiple times talking about the terrifying power of AI, of artificial intelligence. He's come out unequivocally against people developing artificial intelligence. He says, I think it's wrong. I think anybody that, that thinks that AI is going to be 
uh, ambivalent, that it's going to be safe, that it's going to be kind is, is an idiot. He's even said something to the fact, in fact, I've got a quote here. Hold on one second. I want to say back in um, July this year, uh, he reiterated his concerns about the future of artificial intelligence on Wednesday. This is July 23rd, 2020. Um, saying those who don't believe a computer could surpass their cognitive abilities are way dumber than they think they are. And then a little later he said, and mark my words, AI is far more dangerous than nukes. So Elon's come out and said that he thinks that AI is far more dangerous than nuclear war, nuclear war. And that if you think that the cognitive ability of your computer that gets AI is going to be, isn't going to be dangerous, well, you're an idiot. You're dumb. You're dumber than you think you are. And there's a lot of these people out there. A lot of people are just like, you know, they, 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 if, if you can do it, you got to do it. Like, we got to discover AI. It's going to be amazing when we get AI. The computers are going to make it great. We're not going to have to work anymore. Everything's going to be beautiful. The computers will do it all. And um, e Elon's kind of like, uh, he's kind of like the guy, um, Charlton Heston in The Planet of the Apes. When he finally realizes, now this is kind of, you know, I'm jumping forward, but Elon's going to be like the guy, when he finally realizes this planet that he's been on, where the apes are in charge, is actually Earth. It's a post-apocalyptic earth. When he sees the Statue of Liberty submerged in the sand and he realizes all this time, this horror that he's been living, this nightmare, it's actually earth. And he starts yelling, you idiots, you fools, you ruined it all. He realizes that we did this to ourselves. We made the apes ascendant. Now we're their, we're their slaves. But I think Elon knows, he's, he's coming out and saying, look, AI is a problem. Now, I initially, when I heard Elon talking about this over the last couple of years, I thought, good, finally someone, a technocrat, a smart guy, one of these tech gods is coming out against AI. I didn't know the full story. And I was really glad for that. I was like, thank God that Elon's a lone voice because I've been concerned about this. What if we create something we can't control? Why, why are we so hellbent? on creating things that we can't control, like nuclear power and so on. What is it about our, the hubris uh, of, of mankind, the arrogance to think that we can control some of these, these raw powers? And, and, and so you're going to give... Now, I'm not, I'm not worried. I'm not sitting here saying it's going to be like Terminator. You know, Skynet goes uh, functional, becomes conscious, and the next thing you know, it's Terminator world. I mean, it could be, but I don't think it's going to be like the movies. But but I'm thinking of the human, the human situation when there's technology that we can't understand controlling everything. And this, you know, that's already the case now. You don't know what makes your car work. You can't fix your own car. And yet your life depends on your car. Most of us, if you're living in the, in the U.S. or a society with, um, where you've got to drive to do your work. Um, but that said... What happens when that technology is, is sentient and it's way smarter than you and I? You know, what do, what do you do when you see a bug on the sidewalk? Are you like, I need to care for this bug or do you squash it or do you not even care? I mean, I, imagine what happens when computers become sentient. So I think Elon's making this argument. Now, I initially was like, that's great. I'm glad to hear one of these Silicon Valley guys speak up against this kind of reckless abandonment as we chase AI. But here's the thing. This is where Neuralink fits in. I think Elon's argument is the only way that mankind is going to be able to survive in a post-AI world is if we augment ourselves. The only way that mankind is going to survive in a post-AI world is if we augment ourselves. And that isn't through evolution. That isn't through like, well, mankind's just going to evolve to have bigger brains and we'll be just as smart as the computers. He's saying, no, you've got to become a cyborg. You've got to become cybernetic. You need to start putting tech into a human to let them have a level playing field with these sentient computers. The AI world that's coming, the only way that mankind... And this is where Elon... I'm going to use the word visionary. It almost sounds comical. He really is visionary. Now, now you know, you could say it's a, it's a fake vision, this whole thing with Mars and so on is ridiculous. But, you know, Elon thinks way out there. He thinks way out there. And, and when you think way out there, you're going to be wrong a lot of the times, but you only need to be right once. I think of Winston Churchill. If you look at Winston Churchill's life, and anybody that's in one of the, you know, if you're coming, watching from India, uh, Pakistan, some of these, um, you know, former British colonies, you'll know Churchill has a checkered past. That guy failed so much. He was captured uh, in South Africa during the Boer War. He led, um, he led some miserable campaigns where like, thousands, tens of thousands, at least thousands of men died. I mean, he was a f military failure. And yet he was right once. And that one time he was right, he led his country 
through one of its darkest hours, it, it, the, 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 the United Kingdom and the, and the English, they shone so brightly during such a dark time. That was Churchill. And, uh, and that's what we remember about him. So a guy like Elon doesn't need to be right every single time. He just needs to be right once. And, um, and I think his view on Neuralink is this is how mankind will be able to compete, stay competitive, and thrive and hold its place in a world uh, full of sentient computers. Let's take a look at some of the con comments here. So uh, George says, Elon has 100 billion USD and at least a million of ideas. So he'll just go for everything. Yeah, he will. And in, and in that piece that he, that thing on August 28th, where he gave the uh, hour long presentation, he was explicit. I'm not doing this to raise funds. We don't need money. I'm not doing this for publicity. We don't need that. We need talent. Now we need talent beyond people that understand brains. We need engineers. We need scientists. We need mechanical uh, people. We need uh, people that can work with livestock. And we just need all kinds of people. So they've got the money. They're not worried about the, the money. They, they need the brain power. And he, he said, we need problem solvers. We need problem solvers. Very interesting. But yes, he does. Zoltan says, social media, AI is already disrupting society. And that's just narrow AI. Imagine if you give it actual power, buildings, machines, etc. That's exactly it. And I know it, it seems almost science fiction. It seems kind of like Terminator Judgment Day to get into this and say, oh, you know, you're just being ridiculous. But think about it. I mean, there's a reason they made these movies. And I understand it's not going to look just like the movies. It's, it's a movie. But you got to understand there's something real here. And you give, we tend to think we're there's an arrogance. We tend to think that we couldn't create something that would wipe us out. You know, some would argue that the coronavirus is man-made. In fact, there's a scientist right now uh, out of Hong Kong. I don't remember her name, but she's being silenced pretty aggressively. But she's trying to say, I've done the research. I, it looks man-made to me. I don't know. I haven't done the research because I'm not qualified. All I know is I like to, I just, I like to be healthy. I wash my hands. And uh, we'll keep it at that. So let's see. Zoltan, uh, sorry, George says, so humans to AI is like a marriage where the husband thinks he is in charge. <laughs> George, shame on you. You said today's your wife's birthday and you're already making jokes about marriage and, and men thinking they're in charge and really their wife is. Oh, that's funny though. I love your sense of humor, George. Uh, I wish you well, my friend. <laughs> oh, and then Zoltan says, George, only if we give it power. <laughs> yeah. Now, Zoltan, I, I think, I don't know, maybe you're married, maybe you're not. Uh, but the married guys in the house are, are like getting a good kick out of that. Karim says, but the thing is, NL won't do much without AI. Right. So that's an interesting point, Karim. Karim is saying that Neuralink won't do much without AI. So you're saying that Neuralink is going to require AI to be effective, to be effective. And I think that's an element here that where, you know, maybe Zoltan's comment earlier is saying that, you know, Elon really doesn't know where this is going to go. So I think, though, Karim, your, your comment kind of crosses the bridge to what I want to get to here, which is, okay, we've got this situation where the world is changing around us quite rapidly. We're talking about politics, law, culture, values, and even the human organism, we're faced with challenges that we really don't know how to deal with. We, don't, we can't even agree on the challenges. I mean, you could talk about AI. We don't necessarily agree on AI. You talk to 10 different people, you're going to get 10 different opinions. Some people are excited about the prospects. Other people are fearful. And you'll get everything in between. And the same goes for politics. The same goes for global warming. The same goes for coronavirus. And, you know, marriage, traditional marriage, just, you know, transgenderism. Like, add any topic, any topic, simple, seemingly used to be innocuous, education. Uh, we don't agree on these things. And when we look at different data sets, we see different narratives. People like to talk about what the data says. It's like that quantitative data is not meaningful. That's an abstraction of information. What is the narrative? And people, we, we judge data based on narratives. And, and we're all looking at this data, rather different kinds of data. We don't even trust the data. We don't even believe the data is legit. So we can't agree on all these things. And at the same time, our problem-solving capabilities are getting more and more potent. We're more and more capable. 
The question used to be, can we do it? Can we put a man on the moon? You know, can we cure polio? Can we build the Empire State Building? Can we do these things? Can we circumnavigate the globe in a boat? These are the questions that we used to ask. Can we fill in the blank? Can we do it? That question has become old-fashioned. That, that question has become cute. When someone asks, well, can we do it? The, the modern person, the modern human being, the modern man and woman kind of chuckles. Of course we can do it. I mean, we might not be able to do it today, but we're going to be able to. And we even get frustrated that certain things aren't around. You know, it's it, the old joke. It's, uh, I'll say it for this year. It's 2020. Where's my, where's my jetpack? Where's my, you know, flying car? Like, wait, hey, what's taking so long? You said I was going to have this stuff and I don't have it. And, and we know that technology is possible. It's all there. So the, the, we don't sit and ask anymore if we can do something. We just take it for granted that we can. But there's something kind of implicit or, or kind of baked into this assumption that we can. And that is, should we? You see, before we didn't have to ask, should we do something? Because we didn't even know if we could. There were certain things that the gods had, you know, for themselves, fire and, and flight and different things were, were off limits for human beings. And so to try to find or grab those things, it was out of the question. You couldn't do it. You couldn't fly. Then somebody figured out uh, that you could fly or somebody believed that you could and they tried and they tried and they tried and eventually somebody cracked the code. The Wright brothers are one example. They're not the only ones, but they were able to sustain flight on Kitty Hawk. And uh, other people have done the same thing. And next thing you know, uh, we've got trans-oceanic flight and we take it for granted. I've, I've flown over the ocean, I mean, from America to Africa multiple times, to Europe and so on. I mean, I, we don't even think twice about it. Of course we can fly. But we never had to ask, should we? I, I'm sure there are always people, Luddites and so on, that would say technology is bad, we shouldn't do this. But, but we've never really had to ask, should we? And I think we're in a position right now where we just take it for granted that, it, that we can do things and therefore we should do them. Now, I understand you can't control what every person does. We're not living in a world of just a few hundred people where we can kind of manage and police and monitor what everyone's doing. I get that. Totally get that. And I'm not, exp I'm not advocating that we should somehow try to get back to that. I think that that's a silly thing to advocate for. But, but the problem with this question of should we isn't so much that no one's willing to ask it. The real problem is we don't have a way that we can agree on to answer that question. You see, when you get rid of the institutions that mankind relied on, things like the family, the church, the arts, you know, all these institutions that I say get rid of, but you've, you've modified them, you transform them into something unrecognizable. It, you know, the, what, what we call a family now is not necessarily what we used to call a family not so long ago. So when you change the institutions to a point where they're not recognizable anymore, when you change them to a degree that they don't function the same anymore, and this isn't to criticize somebody that's in a non-traditional family. I'm not saying that you're bad or you, you, you know, you're, you're out of luck, you're in trouble. I'm just saying that when we as a society, as a, as a, as a race, as a human race, transform certain institutions that we have relied on for untold generations. Uh, and now we need those institutions, religion, faith, church, so on, uh, culture, you know, our values, shared values, et cetera, education, politics. When we used to rely on these things to get us through these difficult times, to guide us into, through uncharted territory. Not always well, not always clean and tidy, not perfectly. And this is the problem. You bring this stuff up and be like, yeah, but the families were a mess back then and marriage was bad and people were unhappy. It's like, yeah, people have always been unhappy and people will continue to always be unhappy. There's no, I'm not talking about a, a Steven Spielberg ending to a movie where there's golden sunlight and nice music and everybody's happy. I'm not talking about the Spielbergian kind of epilogue to the story. I'm not talking about this, you know, pretend golden era. I'm just saying that we had tools at our disposal that we could then evaluate, that we could navigate, that we could illuminate our way. 
And we don't have those anymore. We, we've kind of sullied and transformed and destroyed them to such a degree that, that, that we feel insecure about them. It's not that we love the new version of the family. It's not that we're, we're, we're arguing for it, we're fighting for it, we're trying to justify and rationalize it, but it's not that we feel secure about it. We don't. Otherwise, we wouldn't be going through what we're going through when it comes to these things. Well, how does this rely, how does this relate to Neuralink, Mike? What does this have to do with Neuralink? Mike, we're talking about computer chips and brains, and you're going on and on about the institutions of society and the family. Well, here's the thing. If we were before held back by the question of can we, that kind of regulated, modulated, uh, moderated, rather, what we did, you know, I, we can't. We're trying. It took us 30 years to crack the code. Yeah, we finally put a man on the moon. But we're accelerating. We don't ask the question, can we anymore? We're getting really competent. We're doing whatever we darn well want to do. So the question then becomes, should we? And we need a way as a race, as, as a collection of societies, as, as, um, as an animal to figure out, should we? And the only way you can do that is to have some type of agreed upon system where you know what is good and what is bad. And in a material world, where you've stripped out the transcendent, where you've, where you've transformed, and not always for the good, the institutions that we relied on. When you throw tradition and history out with the trash because it's passe and I shouldn't be held accountable to the history and it's not fair that my ancestors should have any control over my life. I'm an individual. I can do what I want. When we get rid of all that stuff, yes, we have this sense of liberty. We have a sense of freedom. We can do, say, and be whatever we think we want to do, say, and be. That's what we tell ourselves. But at the end of the day, we've actually become impoverished. We actually are at a loss because we don't have the tools to look at something like a Neuralink. Why does this matter? Why does this matter? Here's the thing. You've got a chip in your head. Let's go forward a few years. Now, now this isn't about the infirmed or crippled. I understand the opportunity. The short-term opportunity is amazing. I think it's fantastic. And if we can help give somebody a way to express themselves, a way for them to be a more functioning, contributing member of society, a way for someone to get more fulfillment as a human being because their body's been broken, but, but their mind is still capable. If we can do that for someone, phenomenal. Why wouldn't we do that? I think that's a good thing. But when you start augmenting human beings, I mean, he's talking about that you're going to be able to control this uh, Neuralink with an iPhone app, a smartphone app. Well, think about that. I mean, we've already got privacy issues. We already know that Zuckerberg is listening to our every word. I, you know, I refuse, like I've got all this tech. I'm surrounded by the computer, laptop, phone, um, you know, tablet, and so on. I, and I know, like I sit and talk about something, then I get on a website and that's what's being sold to me. I mean, it's listening to me. That's why I refuse to have uh, an Alexa or any of that kind of stuff in my house. The last thing I need is, is some giant megalith corporate monster who's not really accountable to any government or any people listening to everything I say and do. <laughs> now, now, I already give the computer, I already give these companies tons of info. I'm buying from Amazon all the time. They, they could pick me out of a crowd, no problem. I mean, I'm not, I'm not working all cash and trying to hide from, uh, from the big eye in the sky. I mean, I understand. I'm just, but it's like they know so much about us. So now think about it. Now you got a chip in your head. We're all walking around with a chip in our head so that we can be competitive with the AI that's out there. Who, who, who monitors that? Who controls that? Who, are they putting thoughts into my mind? Are they giving electrical impulses in? Do, who owns it? You know, are they allowed to just shut it down if I'm relying on this thing and now all of a sudden I wrong think, wrong speak? You know, I have a bad political opinion. Are they going to just cut the cord? Maybe my faith is passe or, or verboten. You know, I'm not allowed to believe in God. Maybe I, maybe I have to believe in God. You live in a world where it's like it's enforced religion. I mean, think about, think about what happens when you put man-made technology into your body on the level of your brain you know, the core of your brain. They're talking about right now, they're kind of in the surface, but they want to get deeper. Elon's saying, we want to, we want to go deeper and deeper into the brain. I mean, they, they, they want, they're thinking about fully integrating man-made technology with the human mind and human body. And they know that things like emotions, religious belief, uh, thoughts, feelings, motor, sensory, and so on, it's all electrical impulses. Essentially, you can control the human being with electrical impulses. You can create feelings, you can create thoughts, you can create sensations, you can create activities, motions, and so on. 
You worry about a deep fake. You look at a video and you go, that's a deep fake. That's not really uh, Sylvester Stallone saying that. That's a, a deep fake. Now forget deep. You won't need deep fakes. You could, from a satellite, make somebody say something that they don't want to say. If this I mean, that's where the technology is going. So the question I have isn't so much, um, you know, can we? It's the question of should we? And even beyond should we, I understand we're going to create this technology. It's already happening. I'm not like saying, you know, turn the car around and, and stop, you know, go, stop, stop. Uh, don't do this. I'm not, it's too late. That We don't live in a world where you can tell, tell people don't do this. But what I'm trying to impress upon you is we need something deeper to help us navigate these things. We get excited about technology. We just assume that a technology is inherently virtuous. If we can make something, that's a good thing. The question I have is it comes with so many so many other decisions, so many other, I'll say, compromises that one has to make. Just a simple purchase. You want to acquire a book on Amazon. Just that simple purchase requires a level of compromise that, that, that we've all just got comfortable with. Personal information, buying habits... Uh, financial information. They know more about you and I individually, and they have the computer capability to, to, to process that raw data. You can't hide in the numbers. They can process that data, and they know you better than you know yourself in some ways. And they know how the human animal works. They know what electrical impulses create certain feelings, thoughts, and so on. We're going to get even more sophisticated with that as time goes on. So it's is it scary? I'm not scared. I'm not worried about getting a chip in my head and being controlled like a robot. But I, I am thinking about successive generations of human beings. I am thinking about what this means for people and humanity and society. And, you know, this is, uh, you could say, well, gee, if, if Elon creates it, maybe a government could then, you know, regulate it or control it so that we're all safe. Governments don't have a great history of making sure that you're safe. Governments don't really have your interests at heart. That's just not how it works because governments are run by what? Governments are run by people. And well, our government would be run by AI. Well, Elon's the one telling us AI is probably more dangerous than nuclear bombs. We have to have a way to think about these things. And I would encourage you. I mean, I think, I think at the end of the day, we have to have a way to agree together. And I think this is a stretch on, on what is good and what is bad. How do we know objectively uh, necessary truth? What is actually true? And I think as a society, we've got to be willing to throw postmodernism in the dustbin. We've got to be willing to throw away this concept that my truth is not your truth. There are certain things that are true. And uh, in our society, we don't want to embrace that. You know, I, I, you decide what's true for you. That only works so far. You know, if, if I decide that, that uh, you're not stronger than me, but then you just punch me right in the face, knock my teeth out, I can believe whatever truth I want, but I did run into the truth. The truth is you just knocked all my teeth out and I'm probably crying right now and not able to retaliate. So I could still believe that I'm stronger than you, but reality is I'm not. You just took me out. And um, I think we have to get better at embracing the truth. I will wrap this up to say, when we embrace the truth, we are able to live life on our own terms. We have more control over our own lives. We have more control of our, de our decisions. We understand our environment so much better. We're able to orient ourselves in the world that we live in. We are able to react in ways we can't control the world. But when we accept the truth, whether a small T truth or big T truth, when we accept the truth, we're in a much better position to engage the world around us, to, to live life on our own terms, and to find fulfillment and happiness and ultimately, hopefully, peace. So I'm going to wrap up the podcast here. I'm going to stick around and do a little Q&A with, with the folks in the live stream. But guys, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, do me a favor, if you haven't already, hit the subscribe button, whether you're on YouTube watching the stream or you are listening after the fact on Apple. Uh, we're on Amazon Music now, which is pretty cool. You can search us there, uh, Spotify, Stitcher Radio, Google, Google Podcasts, etc. The currency, my friends, is everywhere that fine podcasts are provided. Guys, don't ever forget this. Don't ever forget the fact that I love you. I love you guys, and I will catch you in the next episode.